what are the foundational and core principles of Judaism? Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so that you can make your prior best your new baseline. Rabbi Eli Block joins the podcast this week, and in this conversation, we discuss all things Judaism. What are the core principles of Judaism? Why is Israel so important to the Jewish people? And we discuss the rise in anti-Semitism. In other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So click the link in the show notes, see which products might work best for you, and then at checkout, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 183 of Something for Everybody with Rabbi Eli Block. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashpitz. Hi, bye. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dude, thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm really excited to have this conversation. One, like right, right before we started reporting, I told you this podcast is very self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. So I invited you over one, hopefully, so we can teach the people who watch or listen to this podcast more about Judaism, because I think it's extremely important. And in the same token, teach myself about it as well. Um, because right before we started recording, we did some tefillin. That's right. Which we'll get to what that is in a second. We can't start, can't start too big. Um, but my first question before we get into all of that is, one, how are you doing? Like, actually, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank God. Just got back from a long trip and settling back into life just for a few days because I'm off to Israel, actually. Off to Israel? In another week. So I'm not fully settled yet. But so you're in, you were in New York for five weeks? Yeah. And then off to Israel? Yeah. With the whole family? Just me and my wife and her family. And what's what, what's happening in Israel? Or just going there because? We're, there's like a third birthday party for our nephew. Okay. It's like a Jewish ritual that you cut the hair only at three years old. Oh. It's interesting little unknown custom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the excuse. But Beautiful. You wanted to go in there. Okay. Yeah. All right. My first official question is. Okay. You're a rabbi. Right. What does that mean? Ooh. What does it mean to be a rabbi? Well, there's the technical answer, which means that you become proficient enough in some of the basic um, ideas and laws of Judaism to be able to guide others in those observances. That's a technical, just like if you're a lawyer, you studied a certain amount of material to be able to answer questions about the law. Mm -hmm. um, to be a rabbi means to have studied a certain amount of material and be tested on it so that you're ordained as a rabbi. Um, that's just a technical definition, but obviously it means more to people. And a, what a rabbi is, is a is a spiritual guide, someone who can hopefully um, guide each person that comes to them with some um, instruction and meaning and providing a roadmap for living. That's the job of any spiritual mentor and a rabbi is no exception. Hmm. Was being a rabbi always your path? Was that what you were supposed to do? What you wanted to do? Was it a combination of both? A combination of both in the sense that I grew up in that world. My father's a rabbi. Mm -hmm. Um, he established the Chabad, the synagogue here in Plano in 1994. 
So I've been here since then. Um, left for studying, left out of town to study from age 13 to like 20-something. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't really live here from age 13. But um, a lot of my family are rabbis, and that kind of seemed like the most ideal way to spend your life. That kind of was like the highest calling, mm. was to be a servant of the community, mm. and to be um, highly dedicated to the well-being of others, spiritually, mm. materially. Yeah, we could get into it later, but that's more of specifically the, the Chabad phenomenon, or rather being raised as a member of the Chabad movement, which is very niche probably for, for your audience. But to drill down into it, that would be probably to better fully understand what it means to be a rabbi in my vein. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, there's different sects of Judaism, right? Um, which I think we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one thing you mentioned, I think that's important that I talk about a lot in this podcast that can be sort of parsed out into any context is mm-hmm. trying to become that best version of you in greatest service of the world, right? whatever that looks like. Whether that is a mom, a kindergarten teacher, you know, a coach, a rabbi. I think that's important because, you know, we're going to be around people and young people too. And they're very impressionable. And if we can give them a strong role model to look up to something, to become something, Mm -hmm. um, that's extremely powerful. Because a lot of people nowadays have like sort of the the opposite role model, like what not to become. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we can give people what to become, I think that's extremely powerful. And and what's something I think about a lot as a, a coach for youth. Yeah. For young kids. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's really important. Yeah. That, that's a very, yeah. That's a basic Jewish belief, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Is that we're, um, that we're created as, you know, with a, with a mission, so to speak. That we're not, we're not sent down to the world to experience it or to have it happen to us. We're here as an ambassador, so to speak, mm-hmm. of God himself. That, we're, that, that God created each individual human being with a divine soul, a divine part of himself, so to speak, or rather literally, um, so that every human being is actually just an encasement for an actual fragment of God within them. Mm-hmm. And they, God brings that soul to the world so that each person should be an ambassador of his, of love, of peace, of compassion to the world around them, so that no one really is just a subject in life. We're all the authors of our own lives. We're all tasked with a mission to actually serve, serve the world around us, our own little corner of the universe, our own little set of relationships that we're given and the influence that we have in our little circle, whether it's large or small. Um, this is a fundamental idea of, of Hasidic teaching, Kabbalistic teaching, which again is a little more niche, but um, the basic idea being that, yeah, we're here on a mission. Mm-hmm. And that's very empowering because when you tell someone that you know, you're not just, life doesn't happen to you, but you're actually given, you're here on a calling. Right. Every, you have a mission. Like every single person that you see, like the, the guy that you meet in the course of coaching baseball and the people you meet in the grocery store, wherever they are, every single person has their task in this world and their responsibility to be this ambassador of light and love. That's, it lends your life a lot more significance than it would be if you just think yourself as being some random mutation waiting for things to happen to you right yeah you have to you have to step into the arena right yeah you have to play the game yeah you know so i think a lot of people i don't know maybe a lot of people get missed by the spiritual when they 
when some people say that um, what is meant for you is coming to you. And I think that potentially is true. Maybe not so much Judaism-wise, but just in a general spiritual way. Yeah. Especially on social media, people say that. And I think that's generally true only if you're actively doing the, like out in the world doing the thing. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm just sat at home all right. day, right. when what's coming to me? Mm-hmm. The same thing that I've been doing, whatever it is. But right. if I'm out in the world trying and reviewing and trying to iterate and execute and making relationships mm-hmm. and trying to find my passion or what my hobbies might be, then yeah, the, the things are going to come. Right. Not all of them are going to be the perfect fit, but that's when you're like, okay, maybe that's not actually for me, but I'm now I know I'm on the right path and I just keep going and then the right thing comes to me. So I think that that's important. Yeah. Like you said, like taking responsibility, you know, being the architect of your own life mm-hmm. um, while having like the sort of faith in the background, knowing that if you do fall down, there is something there to pick you back up, whether it be God, your community or the combination of both. Right. I think that's powerful, but yeah. 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 Yeah, falling is an important part. It only happens by trying, like you're saying. Beautiful, yeah. It's not going to happen without it. Yeah. We say in Hebrew, we say, Yerida letzorech aliyah, another basic Kabbalistic concept, which means that a descent or fall is only for the purpose of, an, of a climb, of an ascent. Yes. And that there's no such thing, really, when you think about it as an actual fall. Because if the fall is just a necessary step to a greater climbing, then that's just part of the climbing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my spiritual teacher and leader, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, of blessed memory, who's the leader of the Chabad movement, um, would say this all the time, that there's no such thing as really falling. And that the crisis that you experience in life and the fall that you experience um, is part of your story. It's part of your climb. And your responsibility is to figure out how to contextualize it, how to make it part of your story, how to own it. And to make it part of your launching pad mm-hmm. to some greater success, some greater insight that you have into how your, what your life is all about. Mm. So, yeah. And that only happens by, you know, by trying. Yeah. Otherwise, like you say, sitting at home, is you're not going to fall. No. But you're also not going to climb anywhere. Right. You're just going to... But yeah, getting in the arena. Okay, yeah. so now someone's listening. They're thinking or watching. What is, mm-hmm. what is Judaism? I know that's a very broad question, so I'm yeah. not asking you specifically okay. that because yeah. that's tough to answer. Mm-hmm. But what would you like someone to know who is knows that Jewish people and Judaism exists, obviously, right? but is not sure what the religion is based on, mm-hmm. what are the most important practices, okay. things like that. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to the very basic definition of Judaism would be um that god has appointed Jew- the jewish people to observe a covenant between himself and them a covenant meaning like a contract so to speak mm-hmm. would be what we call it today let's say but uh, but uh, but uh, but obviously much deeper than a contract let's say it's a a bond that's inseparable that God gave the Jewish people a, cert- a set of responsibilities, which we call the Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Torah is also known as the Bible. So Christians might know it as the Old Testament, but that's the, the five books of Moses and its attendant commentaries. That is the Torah. Torah literally means instruction. And so God gave this manual or instruction, so to speak, to the Jewish people to observe and to enact in the world. 
and it contains 613 commandments, as well as innumerable offshoots and responsibilities. And, there is, and, and a Jewish person is meant to strive to live by those, by that instruction within the world, and to do so in the trajectory of history is supposed to bring to perfect the world. It's supposed to heal the world from its kind of original trauma. And Judaism allows, or places a mandate really, on its members to fulfill that, to fulfill that law, so to speak, or to fulfill that guide for living, and thereby to perfect their own personal world, which in a sense contributes to the perfection of the entire world. And those observances are, like I said, section 13, there's innumerable amount of commandments. But for the sake of simplifying, we might say that there's two, let's just say there's two categories. There's the commandments that are interpersonal, which means commandments that govern relationships between people, and then commandments between human being and God, so spiritual obligations. So for example, the Sabbath. The Sabbath means um, every seventh day, um, the person has to rest and not engage in any creative labor. And that's why um, Jews who keep the, sh the, the Sabbath won't turn on electricity, they won't drive in the car, they won't write. They'll just spend the day kind of in a spiritual oasis, studying, spending time with family, praying, enjoying meals together. Mm -hmm. um, that's an example of a commandment which is between man and God, meaning it's a spiritual obligation. It doesn't necessarily govern our interpersonal relationships. Then commandments that cover kind of civil law and damages, those kind of commandments that would that come from the Torah, those are interpersonal. Love your fellow as yourself. That's mm -hmm. probably the most famous commandment in the Torah. That's an example of an interpersonal commandment. Um, so you have this structure of the Torah, you have this bond between the Jewish person and God and their responsibility to fulfill these commandments in everyday life. Um, yeah, so those are the three elements, I would say. There's the connection between God and the Jewish person, and between the Jewish person and the Torah. And all three are interconnected. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to go on about this, but Jewish history is just a whole other subject, really, about how has the Jew existed in history? Please. What is their place in history? No, I'm, let's just stop for now. We'll move, try to break it down a little. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. From what I like feel about Judaism, it's more of a religion that's based on action, right? Mm -hmm. It's an action-based religion. Yeah, that's why I said it's like 613 commandments. It's just a very heavily behavior-based. That's why I resonated with it. Well, one, because my family is, and that's how we grew up, and mm -hmm. the traditions and the customs are all very fun and exciting, and the bar mitzvah and all, all right. that stuff in my family. But now as a someone who sort of was not very spiritual or religious for a long time while mm -hmm. I was like in college and being a professional wrestler that like wasn't part of my purview. Right. And then when my sister passed away, mm -hmm. um, I needed something to blame it on. So why not blame it on God? And then my aunt actually said something very profound, which is like, well, if you're blaming it on God, that means you believe in God. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought about that for a long time. Right. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And my dad is, a, is always, uh, like the synagogue is where he's like his place of comfort. Mm -hmm. That's where all his people are. So he's been going for as long as I can remember. Um, and so then I started to think about, okay, well, if more bad things happen, how will I be better prepared in terms of having a faith, a sense of founding or a foundation, something to lean on. Right. Um, so then I listen and learn and read a bunch of stuff. 
as I feel like I'm trying to gain a bunch of knowledge, especially from this podcast. And then you learn that basically Judaism is a, is a, a religion based on action. And I, I love that. Not based on like the words you say, they're important, but it's how you back them up or what you do in the world that actually matters the most. Right. Um, and so, yeah, long-winded statement. I don't know if there's a question mixed in there, but just sort of how I, how I fell back into it. Mm -hmm. um, and then living with Joel at yeah. his house was also very good for me. Yeah. Um, you good. know Joel. He's, good. A, he's a good influence. He's a good man. He's a, he's a good man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's, he was working his way through some things while living in here, and so was I, and it was helpful for us to do that together. And, uh, yeah, so. Hmm. And I, I recently listened to this, like, 16-part series on Daily Wire okay. about Exodus. Okay. Was Who, gave it? Huh? Who gave it? Uh, Jordan Peterson was like the head guy. Okay. Um, and Dennis Prager was in there. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, sure. And a bunch of other just scholars. Okay. And they only went over Exodus. Yeah. Um, which was cool. I, I like um, that. Like once you feel like you're free, mm -hmm. you actually have to then go through the desert to mm -hmm. find your way to actually who you are. And I think a lot of people have have to make that journey through the desert or through Exodus. Right. To figure out who they are. Like they finally got free, whatever freedom means. Right. But freedom without any sort of constraints is not really freedom. Right. So yeah. that was an interesting thing. Yeah, what's missed about that that um, that narrative of Exodus is that people always quote, you know, Moses' words to Pharaoh, "Let my people be free." Mm -hmm. There's another half of the sentence which people don't quote, which is "Tavdin um, which in Hebrew, the original Hebrew, which Moses says, "Let let," or God says to Pharaoh through Moses, "Let my people go so that they can serve me." Mm -hmm. So it's like, yes, let them go from this servitude to enter into another servitude, right? Basically, they go from Egypt to the Mount, to Mount Sinai, where they get given this code of 613 commandments. And they're obligated in these, you know, very, at times, very strenuous obligations. Yeah. So it's like, what, you to be just exchange one slavery for the other? Or like, what's the, it kind of makes people confused, I think. And so we tend not to quote it. It's more like, oh, just be free of everything. That's what's important. But we don't realize, like you're saying, is that freedom does not mean you're free of obligation. Freedom just means you're free to be, to express your own essential self. And if your own essential self is your connection with God, and that's the reality of your being, then fulfilling God's desire and will is the expression of your actual free self. Mm -hmm. So, right, you're in a relationship now, thank God, and you're getting thank married. Thank God, yes, so, that's right. Uh, and um, in a relationship, we don't think of the obligations that we have to our partner as constricting. We no. think of them as the way to really express our connection with each other. Even right. the very fact of monogamy, right? Which is like, well, in a second, it's very constricting. There's only one person now. Mm -hmm. But that's actually a way of expressing my complete dedication to you. Right? So the thing that is constricting is also channeling this intense dedication and love. And so... In all, in all areas of life, there's all sorts of constrictions which are meant to channel the essence of ourselves to the surface. And so when you leave one constricting set of, let's say, a pharaoh, whoever your pharaoh is, everyone has their own taskmaster and their own... Everyone's, everyone's battling their everyone's own set of enslaved, theory. right? Yeah. yeah. And becoming free doesn't mean not having any obligation. It means finding the set of... of regulation and behavior that's going to best express the essence of your soul yeah your mount your mount sinai yeah because i think people get mixed up like if when they make no choice making no choice is still a choice 
because someone's still running your life. Why not it be you? Right. Why not you be? Because there's consequences to action and inaction. Normally, the consequences to action are, are pay much greater reward in a longer time than the consequences of inaction. Right. So, but I think of the constraints thing in sports. Like I played baseball for a long time. If there were no rules in baseball, exactly. it wouldn't be nearly as fun. What the fuck right. would I do? I just right. hit the ball and mm-hmm. no one throws it to any base and there's no, I just run around in a circle and someone can peg me with the ball and yeah. I don't know which base to go to. I don't know if I score or run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it seemed very fun. Yeah. But it's defined lines with, but in those defined lines, there's a bunch of freedom. I yeah. can bunt, I can hit a single. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I can throw here. I can go this yeah, way. That's what makes sports so beautiful: is the ability to be creative within the boundaries, mm-hmm. to use them to to your benefit. Exactly the way a pitcher is used, whatever kind of subterfuge or misdirection that they can to mm-hmm. use the rules themselves. Right. Yeah, baseball. <laughs> baseball's money. Yeah. Every it's, sport has that. Yeah, because baseball for hundreds of years, the mm-hmm. undertone of baseball is cheating. Right. <laughs> Whether it be, you know, pine tar on the hat, stealing the signs, steroids. How, how do you feel about the pitch clock? I I like it because I know that it's for going. the consumer or you like it for the game? I like it for both mm-hmm. because I'm a diehard baseball fan. I'm not going to leave. Right. I'm not going to stop watching no matter what. And that's, they don't need to worry about me and the right. others like me. Right. They wouldn't need to worry about the young boy who... Just TikTok. is on his TikTok, but he has like another game over here, and now he's looking at baseball, and he's, mm-hmm. they've got about eighteen seconds to hook him. Yeah, and if that whole time the pitcher's just walking around <laughs> the mound, they've lost him. Yeah, and now we've lost a kid who might play baseball, mm-hmm. and that's such a cool thing to learn about life is baseball. I think because I played it, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm take a drink. So. Is there anything else you would want someone to know about Judaism? I mean, I could be here all day and tomorrow. Well, talk about Judaism. Let's see. Let me let me let me get more let me get more concrete. Um, why is it? Why is Israel important to the Jews? That's interesting. Israel is important. I don't know why I jumped there, but that's where I jumped. Israel. So the third element of Jewish peoplehood is, so we mentioned the Torah, mm-hmm. we mentioned God and the, the relationship between God and the Jewish people. And Israel is the, how do, we, how do you say this, is the lab where the Jewish people were meant to enact this law in the real world. So like you said, action is the main thing in Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, Judaism gives us a vision in the Torah to build a society that is a vision of how God wants society to look. Um, so all the law, so all the, so, so there's a, a large segment of the Torah is actually agricultural law, which concerns the obligations of the people that live in the land of Israel, which God was taking them from Egypt to the desert, gave them the law, gave them the Torah, then brought them to the land of Israel to enact this law in real life. So Israel is meant to be this kind of model society for what a divine society should look like. What does society look like when every single person believes that every other person is a part of the divine? Mm. What does it look like when we have ultimate respect for each other with no ego in between, mm. which is, let's say, the ultimate ideal of the Torah? So all the laws of the Torah are meant to kind of build a society within the land of Israel, which can then be, so to speak, expanded to the rest of the world. There's a very interesting uh, statement from the Talmudic sages 
I'm going back 2,000 years, which says that in the world to come, meaning at the end of history, the land of Israel will expand to the entire world, which is basically some kind of metaphysical statement saying that the ideals that were meant to be lived out in the land of Israel should become the inheritance of the world as a whole. Because God viewed the land of Israel as this ideal place, the sacred place, where the Jewish people can enact and live out this divine society. Now, did that happen in real life? If you study the actual, the rest of the, the rest of the scripture of the of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, you have all the books of the prophets, which tell us basically the the Jewish history in the land of Israel during two three thousand years ago, where there's just failure after failure, like we talked about, mm -hmm. to try, you have to do something to fail, and the Jewish people often failed in that in that um, odyssey in that endeavor to build this perfect divine society. They had failure in the relationship with God. They had failure in the relationship amongst each other. And so periodically they would be driven from the land. So to speak, that the land expelled them on its own because the land, as Jewish teaching says, it could not contain or handle this undivine society mm -hmm. the Jewish people were living in. It. This is not what this is for. You're not using it correctly. So it would be expelled into exile. And then they came back and they were expelled again. Now we're back again for a third round. But um, yeah, that's the centrality of the land of Israel and Jewish thought is that's the arena where Jewish life is meant to unfold and to build this divine society. At the same time, like I said, that Israel is also a metaphysical idea which should be applied everywhere. So that we should, we should have this, um, one of the, uh, Hasidic masters, Kabbalistic masters in Russia was asked by a, this is in the 1800s, was asked by a follower of his, he said, I want to go to the land of Israel. I want to um, make Aliyah, it's called. I want to ascend. I want to go to this higher spiritual plateau and sell the land of Israel. Like many people did in the 1800s and 1900s. Um, and his master told him, no, you shouldn't go. Rather, you should make here Israel. Mahta Eretz Israel. Create your own spiritual oasis of Israel, so to speak, here in Russia mm -hmm. or here in America or wherever you are. Wherever, wherever a person lives, like we're talking about in the beginning about a mission, every single person is endowed with this mission to create this version of a perfected society in their own corner of the universe, wherever they live. So you make Israel here. Mm. Meaning you can build this ideal divine society in Plano, wherever you're found. Mm. You don't need to flee to go somewhere else to fulfill your essential task in life. Yeah. Where you're put is where you're supposed to be. That's precisely what you guys are doing. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So that goes back to the mandate of Chabad, which, like we said, is a sect within a sect. It's hard to break down in 30 seconds. <laughs> but the uh, So is all of these questions I'm asking yeah. you. But Chabad, specifically, the, the Chabad movement was born in white Russia in the 1770s. So it's uh, you know, almost 300 years old. Um, and it's a branch of the Hasidic movement, which was born in the early 1700s, which the best way to describe it is like a spiritual revival amongst the Jewish people, kind mm. of a, a refocus, a group of people which refocused on joy and on simplicity and on connection with God, as opposed to, um, as opposed to losing spirit, losing God and spirituality, and the details of law, which tended to happen. In other words, when you have a society which is so focused on law, 
and study, and Talmudic study, it's possible to lose the spirit of the law. And the Hasidic movement was a revolution that brought back spirituality to Judaism, mm. in a sense. Um, the Chabad movement is a movement within the Hasidic movement um, who's, who's become famous for, who's, who's who, the Rebbe, the last leader of the Chabad movement, passed away in 1994, um, basically made the mandate of Chabad to become, like you're saying, to become um, messengers, to, to become ambassadors within communities all over the world to create a, a space of Jewish revival wherever they settle down. So there's, let's say, five, 6,000 emissaries or messengers of the Rebbe who settle down in communities like Plano or in like Iceland or in Queens or literally pick any city or country in the world, uh, Dubai now. Yeah, and, um, really, well, that's really cool. Yeah, anywhere, really anywhere. And um, settle down and open up a center basically where they non-judgmentally cater to every single Jew who wants to know more about Judaism to mm. kind of bring them closer and reignite and rediscover the, the beauty of their own tradition. It's the it's just idea of making Israel here. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. What makes someone Jewish? Makes someone Jewish um, in the classical Jewish tradition is someone who has a Jewish soul, which means that they're born essentially to a Jewish mother. Mm. That's the, uh, the way that's been for since the beginning, for 3,000 years. Um, so it's interesting, kind of, the, the, you may know that there's 12 tribes of the Jewish people. Mm. And there's, you know, you have Kohanim and Levian, which means there's a priestly class, there's the Levites, there's regular Jews, there's kind of all these tribal identities. That's determined by the father. So if your father is a Kohen, then you're a Kohen. If your father was a Levite, you're a Levite. If your father was just an Israelite, a regular Jew, then that's who you are. The days when we actually knew who belonged to which tribe, 12 different tribes, that would be determined by the father. But the essential fact of your Jewishness is determined by your mother. Mm -hmm. I mean that the mother is the one who um, creates the life and is giving the essential life to the human being. So that's why the essential fact of who you are, meaning if you are Jewish, that's determined by the mother, the one who gives you life itself. So if you would have a non-Jewish father and a Jewish mother, you'd still be Jewish. Technically, you have a Jewish soul. Right. Yeah, what a miracle that is. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Metaphysical yeah. mysteries yeah. of the universe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's get into sort of the different branches of Judaism. Okay. Um, so I think mostly in America, um, you have Reformed Jews, mm -hmm. you have Conservative Jews, and you have Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. And then does uh, Hasidic and Chabad break off from Orthodox? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so... At least the that's phenomenon my, that's of, of, of um, denominations within Judaism, like you've just described, is a relatively recent, in the span of Jewish history, a recent phenomenon. Okay. So um, we're talking about Germany in the late 17, early 1800s, really accelerated really only in the 1900s, where you have the idea of Reform Judaism, meaning a a branch of people which felt that Judaism had to be rewritten to be to stay relevant. Mm. That's what reform, that sort of reformation is, right? We're going to change the fundamentals in order to make it sure that it stays relevant. So, for example, people in Germany in the 1800s felt like to, in order to become accepted by the wider society, we have to 
kind of erase what makes us individual as Jews and try to model our religion more after the dominant faith, which is Christianity. And so you have synagogues which resemble churches and you have organs and you have choirs um, that kind of are trying to mimic the culture that is around them because they want to become fully accepted. Mm. So you have the phenomenon of Reformation, which says, let's erase, so to speak, the parts of Jews which make us uncomfortable. Let's change them. And so that Judaism can remain relevant. So it's a noble um, impulse, just saying that we want to keep our Judaism sharp mm-hmm. and relevant. Um, ultimately, from a traditional perspective, it's uh, too deep a compromise on the, um, on the essentials. But like I was saying, the, the denominations are recent development in the terms of the, in 3,000 years of history. Right. And um, what I would say is that there's not to speak of, there isn't really any division between one Jew and another in terms of, like we're talking about the Jewish soul. The essence of the Jew remains the same, right. no matter what, no matter if they are fully observant or not observant at all or anti-observant. The, the essence of the soul remains the same no matter what. And so really to speak of denominations is a little misleading because that sounds like, oh, you're this, you're that, you're Orthodox, you're conservative, you're Chabad, you're Hasidic, you're Reform. Those are just um, labels that distract us from what we really are, which is Jews. If you have a bunch of colored glasses of water, if you have red, orange, blue glasses, and you pour water into all of them, they look different, but really they're not different at all. Yeah. Um, and so people like labels because it allows us to pick an identity. Um, but ultimately, I don't, I try to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. And I just see all Jews as in a relationship with God that either they're developing or they're not aware of yet. And all we can do as Jews and human beings is hope to grow every day, and become more connected and more expressive of our identity. That's Jews as Jews, if that's as Gentiles or non-Jews, that's as non-Jews. We all have our own task and our mission in the world, and that's our. That's all we can do to fulfill that mission. Mm. Yeah, because no matter where sort of you're at, your relationship with your Judaism or with God can always be strengthened. Right. That's sort of a never-ending, yeah, never-ending journey. Yeah. You're never. Like you said, uh, if you're not climbing, you're not. If you're not going up, you're not. You're basically going down. Right. Right. If you're not climbing. Yeah. I, I mean, I relate it to sort of, um, you know, I work a lot in mental health. Right. So when you start to get proactive with your mental health, you start mm-hmm. to take care of it. You start to build a set of daily practices and tools, and then you start to feel good and better. And you're like, oh, wow, I've never felt like this. Uh-huh. That's not when the work stops. No. That's really when it just begins. Right. Because now you're, you're not going to ever get there, there. You're just like looking at this like beautiful light post mm-hmm. that's like in the middle of the ocean. You're always just like slowly yeah. climbing towards it. Right. Um, and that's it, right? And that's, that's the work. Uh, and that's what you're trying to teach um, at your Chabad, right? Right. Um, doing classes and talking to people and trying to strengthen their relationship with themselves and right. with their divine and with God mm-hmm. and all of that. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. That's like kind of what you were just saying, where uh, one of the Chabad rabbis, so there's seven generations of Chabad leaders. So um, one year was after Yom Kippur, the holiday of Jewish forgiveness, mm-hmm. right? So once a year, there's a day of Kippur, which means atonement, um, where Jews fast, right? Don't eat anything, don't drink anything, spend the day 
meditating, praying. Um, and that's the day of atonement. That's the day where God, so to speak, grants forgiveness after the person has engaged in repentance or basically trying to reclaim the essential purity of our own selves. Um, so it was one, one year that Yom Kippur was finished and one of the children of one of the Rebbe's went in to see his father and he asked him, okay, so like, what do we do next? We did Yom Kippur, like what's next on our spiritual agenda? So he said, oh, now, uh, teshuva, meaning returning, repentance, it only begins now. Mm. You think that you finish Yom Kippur, you've, you've kind of gained atonement, you're, it's a blank slate. Uh, now is when teshuva actually begins. Now is when repentance actually begins. That's just a, it was just a warm-up. Once you've kind of regained your essential purity or your essential child, that's when the, the build-up begins. That's when the work begins. Absolutely. You start building from the top, from the bottom. Yeah, because you, you become aware that you can do the work. Right. And so then you go out and you, you, you try to do it. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh, sometimes that could be itself daunting. You know, the realization that you actually can change things mm -hmm. becomes itself, in a way, traumatizing. Because now, now I have this set of... No, as long as you think that you're not in control and that you can't do anything to improve your own life, then it's kind of, in a way, you get comfortable with that. Yeah. And it frees you from anything. Well, you can just wrap yourself you. in, in sort of this blanket of cynicism yeah. and say, um, I can't change anything, everything's shit, and have this sort of nihilistic view of the world. Right. Then when you, you know, go, don't go talk to that girl that you think is pretty because mm -hmm. you know she's going to reject you, don't try to get the job because you know you're not going to change anything about it, it's fine, it's comfortable, it's easy. Right. But when you actually sit down and say, no, I do actually matter, you do. Like yeah. we said, you yeah. said there's a divine spark yeah. in each of you that you have to uniquely express. Yeah. And if you don't uniquely express that, the yeah. world is worse off because of it. Right. And that becomes, in a way, that having that realization could be scary. Very scary. Because now I have, now I have to do something. I have, to have this responsibility to myself, to my community, to the world, yeah. to potentially God, if that's how you phrase it. Right. right? It's like, holy fuck. Right. What, like, yeah. what if I mess up? Yeah. What if I don't do the right thing? Yeah. You know, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't go down the right path? Yeah, that's going back to Exodus. Exodus one of, this is a teaching, I don't know if they talked about this on the Daily Wire thing, but um, it's one of the lesser known <laughs> teachings from the sages on Exodus says that three-fifths of the Jewish people mm -hmm. didn't actually leave Egypt. Oh, really? So three-fifths stayed behind in Egypt because they were too afraid to go. Mm -hmm. So this is really comfortable. They like, didn't... yeah, I'm a slave, but I know we're where I'm getting my food from. I know what my daily routine is going to look like. Mm. I'm not in charge of myself, but out there in the desert, that's unknown. Um, that's scary. How, what am I going to eat? Matzah? Like, how long is the matzah going to last, you know? Right. Um, what am I going to drink? And so later on, one of the prophets talks, has this beautiful quote where he's conveying God's message to the Jewish people. He says, I God is saying, I remember the kindness of your youth, meaning at the beginning of your nationhood. When you followed me into the desert, into unsown land that takes a lot of dedication to go out into the open with freedom like the without you know with nothing to fall back on yeah. besides for faith so yeah in other words most of the jewish people were too afraid to seize freedom that's very interesting because it's freedom is a scary thing it is scary yeah hmm. yeah what is what is i know we took a took a class on happiness yeah um, what does Judaism say about trying to live a happy life? 
the question. Well, if you remember from that, one of the main insights of the course was actually a teaching from the Zohar, which is the um, basic mystical Jewish text, um, which taught this beautiful insight that the Hebrew word for happiness, which is simcha, if you rearrange those letters, it spells the word machshava, which means thought. Mm-hmm. In other words, that thought and happiness are interchangeable, the same letters, because what is responsible for happiness is our thoughts. Our external reality could be the same, or could not change, but our thought process can, and that itself can make us happy. Happiness is internal. It's not necessarily contingent on the external facts of our life. And so, being happy, which is extremely important to Judaism, in fact, one of the cardinal principles of Judaism is which means serve God with joy. Now, everything you do has to be suffused with a sense of joy, because how could it not if you see yourself as an ambassador of the divine? That should bring you joy every day. Yeah. The fact that you have that level of worth, that itself should be enough to wake up in the morning. And, you know, we have this prayer that we wake up in the morning. There's a, have you heard of Modani? You heard of the Jewish morning prayer? Mm-hmm. So there's a small little text, small little prayer that we say upon awakening. The first thing we do when we wake up. It's like a thankfulness prayer. Don't my phone on me. Uh, it's Modani lefanecha, melechai v'kayam, she'achzarte b'nishmati, b'chamaraba munatecha, which means... Um, I, I thankfully acknowledge, thankfully acknowledge before you, God, that you've given back my soul, you've returned my soul to me with great faithfulness um, because of your faith within me, so to speak, which means it's a short prayer saying, thank you, God, for giving me back my soul again for another day, which is an indication of how much you believe in me. Mm-hmm. That you believe that I'm worthy to have this soul and this life again to do something incredible. Wow. So I love that. When you think of that, that's a that's a very important prayer to incorporate at least in this daily. Like the first thought is a thought of gratitude. Yeah. The first thought is a thought of gratitude and responsibility. Right. I thank you for giving me this incredible gift of life, and with that comes the faith that you have in me. Yeah. You've. Uh, Right. Nothing is more empowering to a child than the fact that their parent has faith in them. Right? Yeah. That's the biggest gift you can give your child, God willing, um, is the knowledge that you believe they're capable. You believe that they are divine, really. Yeah. If you can impress that upon yourself and upon your children, then that's a, that's a thought process to create happiness and contentment. Yeah. Yeah. Do you view joy, contentment, and happiness all in the same vein, or are they are they different? We could start to splice them, but uh, yeah, I don't see a reason to to get too technical. Happiness, joy. How would you do? You, do you see a distinction between joy and happiness in English, at least? Mm-hmm. I mean, in Hebrew, there's differences and different nouns for happiness that imply communal happiness or individual happiness. Different happiness different is interesting. Things, so. You know, because yeah. it's not something that I actively chase, right? Because then I might never have it, right? But it's something that I I more try and bring joy into my life, mm-hmm. try to bring joy into my life to create happiness, right? That's sort of how I see the yeah. it happening. Yeah, no, happiness is not an end in itself. It's not a something that it's not a destination that you're trying to grab. 
um, but it is essential to, 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 in other words, if the purpose of life is to fulfill this mission so, as a divine being, then happiness is essential because if you're, if you're depressed, God forbid, right? Or if you're the, uh, the first Chabad Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, has a very important text called Matanya, which is kind of his magnum opus, his guide mm-hmm. for, all, for the Hasidic community. And in it, he talks about, really about, about happiness and, and anxiety. And he says, imagine two wrestlers. Oh, this is good. <laughs> and I just thought of this. Uh, imagine two people wrestling. And um, one of them is, let's say one of them is much stronger than the other, much more physical brute strength. Um, but the other, but he is slow moving and anxious. He's depressed, and the other person is quick moving. He's happy. He's light on his feet. Mm-hmm. He's going to win, most likely. The happy one's going to win. Uh, the one who's full of life is going to win, right? Because you're not going to, yeah. And so, he says in the battle that we have every day, that's the central tenet of the book is that each one of us is engaged in a perpetual battle between our two selves. That we have the divine self, which you've spoken about, this divine fragment. We also have uh, what he calls an animal soul, a natural self, the part that wants to stay at home and not do anything, the part of us that wants to regress to our worst natural instincts, the part of us that's egotistical and selfish and just wants our own gratification. That's our animal self. And you have this internal battle between your divine soul and your animal soul. And it's perpetual. It's never going to end, actually. Hmm. You're actually going to be... Your divine soul will never truly... Um, conquer your animal soul. And so you're going to be engaged in a battle for life where every day you're going to be seeking to empower your divine self to be how you behave today. And in that battle, if you're experiencing anxiety or sadness or if you're feeling unsure, then you're not going to, you're not going to be able to win. You have to be, have a sense of, of clear-headed joy in order to overcome this, uh, this existential battle that we have within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so joy is an, 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 an essential ingredient to live a purposeful life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, joy is just, uh, it's, it's the purest manifestation of self-worth. It's the, uh, when you truly believe that you matter, that itself is, a, is you know, it's the happiest thing. There's nothing else that can. Yeah. yeah, and that's not obviously not like happy. Like, I won the game, or happy like I got a raise. That's not. That's just a short burst of right. endorphins. That's not happiness. Happiness. Happiness is a sense of purpose, of belonging, of knowing where you are in the world. Yeah, this is a, a deep sense of yeah. undeniable self worth. Right. Yeah. That no one can take away from you. Right. No matter what. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Beautiful. So you mentioned um, the Kabbalah. Right. I've been trying to learn more about it, but it's quite mm-hmm. difficult and it's quite yeah. complex. It is. Yeah. It is. I, I've read People a, ask me for a good book for Kabbalah all the time. And I, I've read a couple. I'm not sure I learned anything from it because it's just like, it's, I don't know, I found it very complicated. Yeah. And I'm not someone who says they can't, I don't understand something. I didn't really understand much of it. Mm-hmm. Then I've been trying to listen to this guy on the internet. His name Ooh. is Rabbi Mordechai. Mordechai what? Mordechai Finley. Okay. Or the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so I started listening to his lectures mm-hmm. on it. He's going through the whole thing. I haven't. I haven't gone through the. I'll give you some more. Just starting at the introduction, yeah. but not not going to have you go through the whole Kabbalah yeah. here. But what does it uh, mean? How does it intertwine with Judaism? And yeah. it's sort of the 
spiritual mysticism okay. or spiritual psychology of the of yeah. Judaism. So Kabbalah means to receive. That's what the word means. And what that's referring to is a received tradition that's passed down through Jewish history of, like you said, the mystical dimension of Judaism. Um, the way the Kabbalah itself defines it, like I said, the Zohar. The Zohar means the book of, of, of light, of splendor. That's the foundational text of Jewish mysticism. Um, the Zohar says that, um, you know, only a fool looks at a person and thinks that they are their garments, they are their clothing. Right, someone a little deeper knows that there's a body beneath the clothing. There's a person there, mm -hmm. and only a foolish per and you're slightly more foolish or less foolish rather if you just think that the body is the entirety of the person. There's a soul. There's a personality that you have to get to know. That's the real essence of the person. So when you see a person, you see their clothing, you see their body. You don't see their soul immediately. And the same thing applies within Judaism. It says that the the laws of Judaism, um, or rather the stories of, of the Torah, the narratives, those are like the clothing. And the, the law of Judaism, the ritual, that's the body, very essential. But the soul of Judaism, that's, the mystic, that's mysticism, that's Kabbalah. In other mm -hmm. words, what is the animating force behind these laws? What's the psychology behind these laws? What's the spiritual purpose of this whole edifice of Judaism? So Kabbalah is, is, a, is a mystical, um, I guess you could call it esoteric wisdom that was passed down together with the law of Judaism, from generation to generation. Um, and the reason why it was passed down, meaning it wasn't written down, it was passed down secretly, was because it was thought to be um, dangerous or, or, or too deep for the average person to relate to. Mm. And therefore it was kept hidden as esoteric wisdom. But Dangerous in a sense like too powerful? for, yeah, for it could, be, uh, could be misused, mm. could be misunderstood. Okay. Um, like nuclear energy. Oppenheimer yeah, <laughs> on the subject. Yeah. Um, so until, and then not recently, recently, but in the 1500s, 1600s, and then more accelerated in the Hasidic movement in the 1800s, um, there began a movement to reveal the Kabbalah, to say that actually now we actually need this more than ever. So there was a time period where this, where this had to be concealed, a time period where this wisdom was not meant to be accessible, but now as the world has gotten increasingly darker, we need more light. Yeah. And so now, all of a sudden, the Kabbalah is now mitzvah legalot zotachachma, as you say in Hebrew, as one of the great Kabbalists said. It's a mitzvah or a commandment to reveal this wisdom. And that's what the Hasidic movement really sought to, to do, which is to make relevant this mystical wisdom to the everyday person. Mm. Um, now the question, of course, is what does Kabbalah consist of? What are What is this wisdom? And that's what you're encountering some difficulties with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's quite... It is quite deep, obviously. Um, yeah, it's There's a whole parallel vision of worlds and spiritual entities and hierarchies and um, personas. And it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a reason why it was hidden for so long. But um, it describes the process of creation and the purpose of the human being within creation and the function of the mitzvah of the commandments and what they achieve spiritually and psychologically within the world. There's a lot in Kabbalah. Um, for example, did you read about Simpson? Did you read Simpson? Mm -mm. No. It's probably the, the, the building block of Kabbalah. It's okay. the concept of Simpson, which means, it's a Hebrew word, which means contraction. Okay. And what the theology of Simpson says 
is that for God to create the world, he had to kind of, he had to engage in, a, in, a, in an effort of absolute contraction of himself to make space for a universe to exist. Mm. So if I want to just describe this in godly terms, it's not going to come across too well, but thankfully we have parables. Right. So, Hasidic, so, the, so Hasidic wisdom employs the following parable. It says, imagine you have a, a classroom. Okay. And you have um, a teacher. You have a PhD in physics or math, whatever, coming to teach uh, first grade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Einstein gets in there, wherever it is, and he is just teaching, you know, what he knows, how he knows it in his language. Right. Um, there, there are people in the room. There's a bunch of five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, <laughs> but there's no communication happening. Right. Nothing's being creative. He's not doing anything. There's nothing is being changed or affected or built in the mind of a child. It's almost, in fact, that the child doesn't exist. The child is just a person there that's being spoken to. There's no communication. Right. But what does this Einstein, this PhD, have to do? He has to erase, so to speak, all of his advanced knowledge, right? And inhabit the mind of a child. Mm-hmm. Think, how can I explain whatever it is I want to explain to a seven-year-old? I have to forget what it's like to think like a PhD student in, in physics. I have to really think, I have to vacate my mind of that knowledge of, my, of that reality, which is my reality. I have to leave it aside and, and think, how does a five-year-old see things? I start to take out toys to be able to um, convey simple addition. Right. Right? In fact, it says that the, the wiser the teacher, he'll be able to reach the lowest student. In other words, if you could only explain your field of study to someone else, to your peers, but not to someone who doesn't have that knowledge, that's an indication that you don't fully have that knowledge. Right. You have to be able to really address it. Um, so the teacher, in a way, has to contract or disapparate you know, from his own wisdom and speak on the level of the child to be able to create anything, to be able to start building something within the mind of the child. In a similar way, Kabbalah says, um, if God were to bring a world out into existence, right, and his own, his own reality were to be unchanged, then the world would not exist. Meaning, if God is everywhere, this is the basic Kabbalistic concept, is that God is all of existence. There is nothing else besides for God. In the beginning, there was nothing. God brought out existence from absolute nothingness into something. Mm-hmm. So if God is all there is, if God is that mind of the professor in the classroom, and then he brings out a universe, the universe will be obliterated in the presence of God. Right. How can we, how can we act if we just see the divine reality, so to speak, everywhere? We would have no sense of control, mm-hmm. no sense of freedom. We would just see the divine reality for what it is. We would lose all sense of consciousness, all sense of who we are. We would be obliterated in the face of the divine reality, just like the child would be totally unmoored with the professor just speaking gibberish to him. So God, in the act of creation, had to hide himself. And he performed what's called tzimtzum, which means this immense contraction, where his light, so to speak, or rather his presence, 
is not detectable anymore. So I'm going to erase all my presence within the universe, the fact of my existence, and bring out a world into the space of emptiness where it would be possible for the beings within this world to not even realize that there's a God, to feel as if we are totally autonomous, to feel as if we're, that, that we exist on our own, we don't even know where we come from. We don't feel like we come from, we don't feel like we have an intestine. We don't feel like we came from something. We know we came from our mothers, but we don't feel like, we don't feel connected in that way. Mm. We feel as if we always existed, right? Our consciousness is like, we are because we are. And Kabbalah explains that's a mystery, that that mystery is possible because God vacated himself in the act of creation. He made space for us to exist. And by to do so, he had to, so to speak, make himself invisible. Mm. And this is a foundational principle in Kabbalah because what it means is, is that really God is everywhere, but we just can't detect it. And the and the job of the soul is to reveal that is to regain that reality. Is to come to the realization that everything is one. The idea of Kabbalistic oneness, which is that, well, the divine is within every single thing in this world, within me, within you, within the table, within this city, within this world. And to cultivate that awareness means to start to realize that we're all part of the same divine story. Mm -hmm. But first there has to be that tsum, that that invisibility, that contraction. Which means in a sense that you know, creation is tragic. Because life life in its beginning is tragic. There, has, there was a great invisibility. There's a great um, disappearance which happened. Which is the awareness of who we really are. The awareness of God. And so, like, that's the original trauma there from the beginning. Mm. There was, from the very, in other words, whatever we experience in our own lives, trauma is just replaying that original disappearance of God. And you feel like, how could God do this? Yeah, God already did it. He already, he already became invisible. Yeah. And he just did it again. Mm. Whenever you experience that. And the, yeah, so this is, that's an example of a Kabbalistic narrative of the creation of the world and and that's inner those teachings are intertwined with in hasidic teachings yeah. and how you go about being a rabbi yeah yeah so my frame of reference is hasidic teaching in kabbalah as judaism is refracted through that lens and how you that's how you guide people on their spiritual journeys yeah is through that the lens. teachings of hasidus which is a distillation of kabbalistic teaching it's an elaboration mm. Yeah. So Simpson is one example of uh, just trying to give you a sample. Yeah. Very good. There's way more way more than that in this story itself. Well, there's there's much deeper levels to all of the things we've talked about so far. Yeah. But this is sort of your uh, basic introductory it's level. It's not even basic, but it's yeah, it's a little more than right. I think it's a little more than basic. A little more than basic. I think so. <laughs> I think it's much more, but you know, uh, I think it's been great. So, uh, again, self-indulgent. Yeah. Having you over just to learn yeah. from you. Okay. We could do much more Kabbalah stuff. Um, speaking of another, uh, I think, important part of Judaism that a lot of people know but maybe not fully grasp is what we're wearing on our head. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. The kippah. Yeah, the kippah. So that, we could just tie it into what we were just saying. The kippah is um, skull cap, just a covering that you wear over your head. And the basic symbol, um, symbolism of the kippah is to be aware that there's something above us. Mm. In other words, to be aware of the fact that we're present within this divine reality, that we're not uncovered, so to speak, that we're not just alone. 
Um, so the awareness that there is a higher calling, a higher being that is expecting something of you that's given responsibility to you. That's the idea of the, of the head covering, that there's something above you. That's the physical reminder of that. Yeah. And then there's also the tallest or the tzitzit yeah. that you wear all the time. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, if, you, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see a little bit of it. Strength. Um, yeah. Most people, some, or not, I don't know, most, I don't know the right term, but mm -hmm. people wear, throw it over their shoulders um, when yeah, they walk so, into synagogue. Right, so when you pray, you wear this shawl, which has four corners and a number of strings attached to the corners. And that's, again, a reminder, that's a little technical, but the, um, like the numerology of the, of the strings amount to the number 613, which is, again, a reminder of the commandments, the right. authentic commandments. It's kind of a physical... The talit, which kind of surrounds you as a kind of expression of God's encompassing love. And the strings, which are the commandments, are like our responsibility towards God in that relationship. A reminder of 613 ways that we are called upon to reciprocate that love. So that's the, that's the talit. All technical, more technical yeah. stuff. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And then one more thing. Yeah. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that we did some to fill in yeah. before we started recording. Yeah. I think that's um, yeah. I'm, I said I would mention it, what yeah. it means. We can so. show it. Yeah. So the tefillin is a very basic, important Jewish ritual. All Jewish males from the age 13 and up do the tefillin. So the tefillin is basically two boxes, leather boxes. One is affixed to the head above the mind. The other goes on the left arm opposite the heart. And it has straps which go down the arm, seven straps on the forearm, three on the upper arm. So it's a total of 10, which is also connected to the Kabbalah, the 10 divine faculties. We're not going to get into that now. Oh, wow. Um, so with it inside the tefillin box, you have parchment upon which is written by a, by a ritual scribe in a very specific way, very beautiful handwriting. Um, they write the Shema. And the Shema is the basic declaration of Jewish faith. It comes from the uh, book of uh, Deuteronomy. You would say the Shema is the most... It's the basic Jewish prayer, yeah. part of the Torah. The, the, the basic line is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means hero Israel. Um, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Mm. Just like I was talking before about the Kabbalistic idea of oneness, that all of reality is really part of God. That God is within everything. That's the idea of this first line of the Shema. That God is one means not that there's one God and not two. It means that, no, God is one with everything. Mm. There is no separateness within creation. There is, it's all a mirage. Whenever we perceive difference, ego, differentiation, argumentation, that's, con that, that's covering over the oneness of God. The task is to get to the oneness, mm. to find the interconnectedness between all of creation. That's the idea of the Shema. And so we, so we wear that, we kind of physically wear that idea upon our head, minds and hearts during prayer in the morning. And the symbolism there is to kind of impart that mission statement of being an ambassador of oneness, bringing oneness within the world upon our arm, which is opposite our heart, our emotions, and our mind, and our brain. Um, to kind of impress these ideas upon our, our daily behavior. So our mind, our thought, um, our emotion, and our action are, are aligned and are connected in this mission of bringing the idea of the Shema, the oneness of God, into the physical reality, how we behave every day. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the symbolism of the tefillin. It's beautiful. Yeah.
Thanks for bringing it over. Yeah, it's a pleasure. How many times a day do you put it on? Just once. Just once. Yeah. In the morning. Yeah. You kind of just do the morning prayer with the tefillin. There are technically three prayers a day that Jewish people do. There's morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer. And they're all different or they're all the same? They all have certain elements of... The, the, the main element of the prayer is same in all three. But the morning prayer is longer. The afternoon prayer and the evening prayer are pretty brief. Yeah. But they all have the, the main text of the prayer is the same in all three. And which is? Which is called the Shimona Esrei, 18 benedictions, 18 blessings. Okay. So it's a, it's a bit of a longish prayer. Um, which is comprised of asking for our daily needs and expressing gratitude to God for fulfilling those needs. Beautiful. Yeah. My prayer is a whole other discussion. Yeah. Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Anything you think we miss that someone might need to know? Just off the top of your head, um, that's important. If not, I have one one more question. You have one more? So let's hear it first. And then we'll... This is not about... Uh, oh. the Jewish religion at all. Oh, okay. It's about Judaism, but... Okay. Um, I know some people like to are curious about what is the Jewish perspective on non-Jews. Okay. What, if your audience is mostly non-Jewish, what exactly has Judaism viewed the rest of the world? And like I referenced earlier, Judaism believes that every single person is created in the image of God, is given a divine soul and a fragment of, and a fragment of God and therefore has a mission within the world which is given to them by God. Mm -hmm. And for the Jewish person, that is to fulfill these 613 commandments, that is to live as a Jew. And for the non-Jewish person, there's um, what's called the seven Noahide laws, meaning the seven commandments that were given to, in the Bible, Noah, the very beginning of the the story of the flood, if you recall. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those seven commandments given to, to Noah are really for all of humanity. They're seven laws of humanity. And... They are basically the the um, get into the specifics, but like believing in believing in one God, establishing courts of justice, not uh, no not having cruelty towards animals, um, not to kill or steal. Obviously, those are in there. Um, adultery, uh, committed relationships, um, and so there these laws are meant to kind of enforce a basic sense of civility and society than the world, and so. A non so so a so how does Judaism to answer the question how does Judaism view the role of a non-Jew within the world it's as a it's the same as the Jew is the the same mission as a Jew which is to be an ambassador of God's oneness within the world within mm-hmm. their sphere of, of activity they're not obligated in the 613 commandments that the Jew is but they're obligated in their own way in their own responsibility to to create a more beautiful world that is more reflective of the divine unity just as the Jew is and they each have their own role yeah within the world that's a question I get often that's good that's beautiful yeah what was uh, your question my final thing I wanted to talk about um, if you're willing to speak on it okay. is um, anti-semitism okay do you do you personally believe there's a rise in that um, if so maybe why do you think so mm-hmm. uh, if you don't think there's a rise in it fine yeah. um, but also just general thoughts yeah. on it Good question. Um, I mean, there, there's, there is statistically a rise in anti-Semitism, and people are definitely more emboldened. I don't know if anti-Semitic sentiment is is rising as much as the expression of the sentiment is mm-hmm. rising. In other words, I don't know if, in other words, if there's an increasing amount of people 
that are having anti-Semitic feelings that didn't have before. I just think that those people which had those feelings are now feeling more emboldened to express it. Mm. And there could be a lot of different societal reasons for that, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not going to get into why I think it's rising. Um, for, for me, what's important is what's a Jew's response to anti-Semitism. And that is what the, the Rebbe always told us, which is to respond to darkness with more light. Yeah. And light means education, light means Jewish pride, light means being committed to who we are, to our identity. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I've ever encountered anti-Semitism, the response is always education and pride. And that's, and that's how I bring more light to the world. If you, um, you would hope that if you sit down with someone who would be willing to listen to you, that they get to know you as a person, they get to know your beliefs, you're in their respect. And maybe that's just one way to combat anti-Semitism on a personal level. Um, ultimately, it's difficult to reach individuals in that way, but things like this, shows like this, conversations like this, where people learn more about Judaism is an important step. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I don't, I don't like to um, respond to anti-Semitism with um, wailing and woe is me and what are we going to do? This is an existential crisis because fear doesn't, you know, if your children or if your congregation or your, the people that are in your community um, feel that anti-Semitism is something to run from or that this is like a crisis, then who wants to be part of a people in crisis? Who right. wants to be part of a depressing faith, which is always on the run? Um, people want, you know, if you inspire confidence by saying, we're going to fight darkness with light, that this is just an opportunity for us to educate, this opportunity for us to express our own Jewish pride, that's a people I want to be part of. Yeah. So, um, of course, anti-Semitism anti should be addressed on a political level or a societal level, and that's for politicians, you know, or it's for lawmakers, let's say. But the job of each one of us as individuals is to be a beacon of light yeah. in our own way, through education, through expressing our own Jewish pride, through doing tefillin and answering questions. And that's what we can do. Yeah. Yeah, because I think like the like sort of the the Jewish stereotypes that exist, mm -hmm. like they're probably always going to exist. Right. Like that's hard to like do away with those, mm -hmm. the the frugal, the money, the big mm -hmm. nose, things like that, whatever it is, like whatever you have your stereotype ingrained in about Jewish people. Mm -hmm. But if you happen to know a Jewish person or meet a Jewish person and they're uh, uh, proud of where they come from and their heritage and their religion and what right. they stand for, I think you're less likely to then just go and randomly make fun of them. Right. Like unless it's banter or a comedian, right? Some mm -hmm. of those things have their place, obviously, right? Because right? comedians make fun of everyone. I think right. their truth is very important. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're just like being super cruel to be cruel, um, then I think that's a personal reflection on you and there's needs to be much more to be yeah. done about to change the way you view yourself and the world. But if you're just like randomly making these sort of little jab stereotypes, yeah. they still, they still hurt. Like I've been getting on my whole life cause I have a big nose and big ears, um, which I'm very proud of. Um, but when I talk to people and meet people and they know that I'm Jewish, like it just sort of, it goes yeah. away because right. they're like, Oh, this guy's just like a, it's proud of where he comes from and who yeah. he is. And, yeah. and, and so it just goes to what you're saying. It's usually anti-Semitism usually is a reflection more of the, of the hater than the hated. Oh, of course, always, always. When people There's comment, own insecurities yeah. or own. People know. comment on this podcast. They don't like it. They don't agree. 
Yeah. It's like totally fine. You yeah. can definitely say it in a normal <laughs> way, but then I get it. Like I have empathy for that situation because yeah. you might be going through something that I know nothing about. And mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to, you know, view that through a social media lens or just on a comment, but yeah. you try to, you try to be that sort of energy in the yeah. world that you can be. Yeah. But that's good. Yeah. All right. One last question. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. were going to put up a billboard yeah. in New York city, Okay. And millions of people are going to see that billboard every yeah. single day. Yeah. What's going on it? Oh, definitely. But what we started with, um, you are a divine soul. You are a divine soul. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, no question. I love it. Yeah. Perfect way to end. Beautiful. Thanks, Rabbi. This is wonderful. I appreciate you yeah, joining. I enjoyed me. it. Um, we'll line up for round two. There we go. And we'll get even more deep. More, more Kabbalah. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. Please. But I got to learn a little bit more. Yeah, so I'll I have, send you some better. So I have some better questions to ask. But, uh, books, it's hard to find a good Kabbalistic intro book, but there are some good podcasts. And um, I'm trying to find them. Good, some good podcasts and video series. So, yeah. uh, But where uh, where can people find you? Where's your, your synagogue? So our synagogue is called Chabad at Legacy West. And our website is ChabadLegacyWest.com. Yeah, that's linked. Contact That'll be linked in the show notes if yes. you want to. Thank you. If you want to find some Jewish learning or Jewish people. Right. Um, yeah. And if you're familiar with this podcast, you know my old roommate, Joel. He goes there frequently. So that's right. You can always uh, contact him. Right, we'll see him. more of you now, too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. But thanks, Rabbi. I appreciate it. Yeah. See you guys. Cheers. you for tuning in to that episode with Rabbi Eli Block. What a fantastic episode. I've been a Jewish person my entire life, and I learned many things from Rabbi. What did you learn from today's episode? Please, I would love to hear what you learned from Rabbi Eli Block. And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend, because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbitz directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. But most importantly, really most importantly, above all else, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.